0: This is Castle One. Castle One. Race Officer speaking. Speaking. Layline oh, oh, oh. is on boundary up ahead, 35 seconds out. A bit lowering faster here, lowering faster here. Ho, oh, oh, oh. That's a good one, Jimmy. Still gaining on the daylight there. Still gaining on the, We're, on the We're looking at 10-5 to 42. 5.
1: Matching
0: him on the boundary, Yeah, Copy.
1: Welcome back, podcast listeners. It's great to have you along with us. And again, thanks for joining us. We left the last episode on a massive cliffhanger with our guest Tom Whidden's immortal words. So now we're up 3-1. What could go wrong? As I say every month, if you haven't already listened to part one, this month you absolutely must. Tom ended the first part, of course, talking about the 1983 America's Cup match against Alan Bond's Australia 2. 132 years of sporting success, again looking to be repeated as Tom, on board with Dennis Connor and the crew of Liberty, now 3-1 to the good and one race away from winning. And he's about to discuss what happened next. Before we get back to Tom though, if you're enjoying what you hear, then head over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash sailing podcast. It's easy to use and your support allows us to stay ad free and to keep on delivering these uninterrupted pods. So a huge thanks for the coffees. It makes a real difference. You may also have noticed this is episode 24 of season three. That makes this episode the final edition of our season three run of podcasts. So thanks for all your support. Thanks to you all for tuning in. And thanks to those of you that have got in touch. We've been making these podcasts for three years now, and it's been an absolute pleasure. When we started off, we wanted to try and bring you right to the heart of the sport of competitive sailing. It's such a diverse arena to be able to sit down with some of our sport's biggest names and having the time to tell their stories has been truly fascinating. It's been a huge amount of work and to all of you that have shown your support, a heartfelt thanks. We're going to take a bit of a break as I gear up for the big offshore challenge that lies ahead, and then looking at what we can do with the podcast moving forward. Right now, though, we're blasting back in time to Newport, Rhode Island, September 1983. Dennis Connor and his crew on board Liberty are 3 1 up against the Australians, defending the longest winning streak in world sport.
0: There's pressure, because you don't want to be the first team to lose the cup. So they beat us by two minutes in that race. So now it's the race of the century. You know how great a comeback would be here if we go win it back?
1: I mean, Tom, it it was maybe the first time ever that a challenger had a real opportunity. I mean, how much
0: pressure... But they're down 3-1. Yeah,
1: but how much pressure did the team feel? And how did Dennis handle that sort of pressure? I mean, the spotlight, you know, there was lots of controversy as well, wasn't there? The spotlight and the fame. I mean, he was a big name, must have been under a lot of pressure.
0: You know, I'm sure that there was more pressure than I'm remembering. But first of all, being up three one was pretty cool. We knew we were slower in most conditions. There was a range between about 11 knots and 13 knots that we were competitive. And we used the two measurement certificates to make us a little more competitive in those ranges. So the, but being up 3-1, you know, we said, hey, you know, all we gotta do is win one more race and we've done pretty well beating them. They didn't start very well. So we had an advantage with them there. Um, so I, I don't think we were feeling too much pressure and we had sailed so much surely, and we had sailed together so much that I don't really remember having a ton of pressure and we believed in each other. And I do remember, you know, there's pressure because you don't want to be the first team to lose the cup. Um, You know, and everybody said, you know, that the skipper's head and the tactician's head was going to be where the America's Cup was sitting in the club. I wasn't a club member yet, but I was soon after. So I felt the pressure from that point of view, but I didn't really feel the pressure race by race. The seventh race, thinking ahead, that was pretty good pressure. But, so the fifth race, we go go out. It's a perfect condition for us. It's like 13 and a half knots. And I'm going, I liked our chances. So we go out a little bit early. We're we're tuning up with our other boat. John Marshall trimming the main, I'm doing the tactics, Halsey navigating. And I'm watching John Marshall, and we're kind of tuning up the sail because he and I used to talk a little bit about the mainsail trim. And I'm watching him, and I see him pumping the jumper strut out. And he keeps pumping, pumping, pumping. And I'm going, John, what's the what's the problem? And he said, the jumper strut's not moving. I said, well, you know, don't break anything because you know the sail doesn't look too bad. And he's pumping away, pumping away, and nothing's happening. So, I go, okay, well, let's tack and see what it looks like on the other side. And um, so, we tack, and I look up, and the jumper strut is is pumped all the way out, and it breaks off the mass because it's pumped all the way out. So, what happened is John had the wrong, um, the wrong valve open, and he pumped the leeward one out when he was trying to, when he's looking up, trying to make the windward one look right. So, here's a race five we're up 3-1 we could win the regatta then because it was in a condition that we weren't bad in and we've got a jumper br- strut broken so we call and we're way out we're like 5 miles out so we call our tender we we say hey we got to run in get the parts we need see if we can fix it on the water because we don't have the time to try to take the boat back in and try to fix it and you couldn't get a delay um, so the guys run in, they come out. I think it's maybe an hour before the start or 45 minutes before the start. And Scott Vogel and Tom Rich go up the mast and try to repair it. And the boat's, you know, rolling around and they're, they're flying out and hitting the mast. And, oh God, I just felt so sorry for him because they had to crew the, the regatta, the, the race after that. Sure enough, they got it on, they got it working. We go to the start, we're, we're like a little late into the start. We drop a Genoa overboard by accident. I think it was, I can't remember if we got it back on board, but for sure, the bag, the sail bag went in. We're at a little disadvantage at the start, but somehow we turned it around. There was 10 minutes, you know, you entered with 10 minutes to go back then, or maybe 10 minutes and it was five minutes. I, I can't remember. I think it was 10 minutes. And we got, the, we got the advantage, and we got them over the, to the line way too early, so they were way too slow, had to slow down, slow down, and we had full speed and took off. So we're going along, we're going along, beating them, no problem, tack to port, going along for a while, and the jumper peels off again. And now we're with our heavy air mainsail, wind going down a little bit, and no jumper strut. So slowly but surely, they ground us off, and so now we're up 3-2. Next race, we have a good start. We start ahead of them. It's a shifty northwester, tactician's nightmare in uh, Newport. You've raced there some, so it was one of those days where there was much more pressure to the left, but the wind, the gra- the wind was slowly shifting to the right. So it's pretty hard to pick a side. You know, you had to pick the left for, for wind speed, for pressure, and you had to pick the right for the ultimate shift, and. So we, we get ahead of them, we we do a couple tacks, we tack on them every time. Then we get about six tacks into it, they tack on the port, we go up a little above their line, tack on their wind, and I'm looking back and I'm going, they're about to tack. And so the bow comes up, comes up, comes up, and I go, they're actually not tacking. And they get this big humongous left shift, and they go way up here. And we're down here in a, in a kind of left shift, but not much pressure. We, so we had gone from on their win to them up here. And then slowly but surely they sailed away. So they beat us by two minutes in that race. So now it's the race of the century. Oh, Seventh Tom, race.
1: Tom, in all those years of racing for the Cup, the Challenger had won just eight races from well over... 50 sailed and here they were three all the longest winning streak in sporting history on the line the final race of the 1983 cup I mean it deserves its own podcast it was a real nail-biter wasn't it I mean how much pressure did you all feel going into that final race
0: well I remember every minute of it basically and it's not because I have a fantastic memory I've just got a good memory for races and a lot of things went well and a few things didn't go too well but back to the pressure. Okay. There was a little pressure now because, you know, the, the fate of a nation and the longest winning streak, you know, is on the line and you're the tactician and Dennis is the skipper. So I remember we had a nice dinner the night before at the Clark Cook House, and, you know, we talked about it and we said, Hey, this is going to be difficult. Um, and it was supposed to be a relatively light air day. So we used our double, you know, we used our two certificate, um, measurement ability to go in our really light mode. So we had a really lot of sail area and it was the right mode for the day. Um, So I think, I don't think we had them across the line early but I think we had a pretty good start. And we went up the beat and I think at the first uh, mark we might've had a, don't quote me on this, but a 30 second lead or so. And we go, we're pretty good on the reaches. So we go around the reaches. And we might've still had a 30 second lead. I don't remember exactly. I mean, I remember the race pretty well. So we come around the bottom mark and back then it was a triangle, then a windward lured, and then a windward. So at the bottom mark, the, you know sort of the classic match race move is wait for them to get the mark. They tacked the left, tacked right with them. So, but I said to Dennis, hey, there's, a, there's quite a bit more wind to the left right now. And he looked over there and he said, I agree, we tacked. Went over to starboard, and literally within about the within five minutes, we doubled or doubled, more than doubled our lead. So I'm going, ooh, this is looking pretty good. So I think uh, there was a time when we might have had a minute and a half lead going up that beat. And the only bad and the the thing I did poorly on that beat is that I, as we got up towards the top of the beat, I gave up on the left and said, let's protect the right you know, I figured if they gained on us a little bit, we'd be fine on the right, no big deal. And the left came back in and they did almost the same thing we did to them early on. So we come around the mark, you can check the time, but I think it was around 48 seconds, something like that, which, you know, in a 12 meter is eight boat length lead, something like that. So I'm still feeling pretty good. There's enough wind to kind of hold them off. So we both bear off onto starboard. We go, 10 minutes of what would be about a 40-minute run because the runs were pretty long, you know, not, not like the Cup now. They were three and a half miles or something like that. And in the first 10 minutes, they took half the lead away. So I'm going, hmm, this isn't looking all that good. So I say to Dennis, okay, we've got two options. We can try to pick a couple of shifts here and, you know, try to do a better job than they're doing or wait till they get right with us and then have kind of a, a little fight. And, you know, we've done well in fights with them, so let's give it a rip. So he goes, well, let's try picking a couple of shifts. So we we jive onto, onto port about 12 minutes into the run or maybe 13 or 14 minutes into the run by the time we make the decision and actually do it. So sure enough, they go by us. So they keep going almost to the lay line and we pick we we go down the the run and sure enough we get lifted so it helps us a little bit we go back at them and we've still got a this is like 30 minutes 25 minutes later we've still got about a two and a half boat length lead so we go just across their line drive in front of them so we don't give up the inside at the mark the you know the port the port side rounding the port and I figured they'll jibe away and we'll be on starboard when we come back. They don't jibe away, they square up in a 12 meter. They square up inside of us and they go through us to leeward. And then we had, um, we went around like a couple of boat lengths behind, had a tacking duel, I'm, the his, history books will tell, but I think it was around 40 tacks. we sailed them into the spectator fleet, everything. That was it, that was the, that was the last race.
1: How desperate was it at at that moment on board?
0: So not a lot of talk, Um, you know, we waved to the other guys. We waved to the people that were waving to us. There's some great pictures. I have a picture in my workout room at home, which kind of follows my cups, but I have the one picture that's the picture of us right after the finish, heading downwind back to the port. And we didn't look very happy. But honestly, you know, we, we talked about it a little bit on the way in. And everybody has their own way of showing their emotion. You know, some guys were in fighting back tears and, and, um, Halsey was visibly emotional. Some of the John Marshall was quite emotional. Dennis was good, you know, and I, I said, this isn't much fun, but you know, what do you, what, you know, how great a comeback would be here if we go win it back? We said it along the way on the way in and you know he didn't give me a really positive answer but he said yeah that would be cool something like that we really didn't talk a lot about it and and um you know we put the boat away the when we got to the dock we had a little dock house that was where our telephone was and i walked down the dock and the phone was ringing and and i get I pick up the phone and there's a loudspeaker in there, so out to the boat. Dennis is still on the boat at that point. And um I I pick up the phone, and I go, Hi, um, Freedom Enterprise, or no, not Freedom Enterprise, Liberty, Freedom, Freedom, Liberty, whatever we called ourselves back then. And the voice on the other end says it's the president. They they would like to talk to Dennis. And so I'm going, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and they said, no, it's really the president. It's President Reagan. He wants to say hi to um, to Dennis and just give him his condolences or whatever he said. So I got on the um, on the loudspeaker and I said, Dennis Connor, Dennis Connor, you have a phone. You have a, uh, a phone call. It's the president. He wants to tell you you screwed up. So everybody starts laughing and on the dock, and that was kind of a light moment. And sure enough, it was the president, and Dennis came in and talked to him, and so it was kind of a lighter moment at that point. And you know, we and then Dennis and I said, "Hey, let's go over and congratulate the guys that win." And we went over there and saw the keel and whatever. It was a pretty emotional moment. And um, then we went to the uh, press conference and you know said said. Uh, you know, whatever he said, God was an Australian today and wasn't an American and we lost to the better better boat and better team. And, and um, it was a great event and a great seventh race. And it was a great. And by the way, you know, I'm sure we get criticized for whatever we did in that race. But the only criticism should have been the, um, you know, the upper part of the beat, but nobody criticizes us for that. But that was the one screw up because we had enough lead probably to hold them off even going downwind. That's the one thing we could have done a lot better, I think. I would defend anything else we did in the race. I mean, knowing, maybe knowing what I know now, we would have done, maybe kept going with them on the run, but I don't know.
1: Tom, no athlete likes to lose. You know, I know that, but how does it affect you?
0: Well, so for sure, every person I ran into told 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 me what we could have done better but that goes with the game right and if you want to be a tactician you cannot have thin skin so and I've learned that and I think I'm good that way so you know no problem and it's everybody's right to tell you if you lose you know how you could have done it better so I, I took it quite well that way we went to the white house and you know had a nice event there and um, But for sure, I wanted to be part of whatever it was organized to go try to win it back, and we started talking about it pretty early on. So I didn't like the loss, but I I tried to be I tried to be um, you know good about what the opportunity could be out of it. And I think everybody, to be fair, I think everybody recognized that we lost to a pretty good, pretty good boat and that somebody thought of an idea that we didn't think of. And that's part of the game. You know, it's not, it's not a sailboat race. It's a, it's a technology race where sailors get to figure out what the outcome is. And anybody that thinks that you're going to just outsail the competitors, honestly, I felt like we outsailed the competitors and we lost. So, you know, you can't brag, hey, we sailed better than they did because that's not the game. You know, the game was the whole package and we lost because our package, including the sailing, including all the things that go along with it, we, we didn't do it as well as they did and we lost. So what do we take out of that? We take out of that that there's a way to do it better. And, you know, it's a very uh, over overused um Common thing to say, but you lose more, you learn more from your losses than you do from your wins. And I think in this case, that was very much the truth. And if there's ever a campaign that should be looked at, if you just wanted to uncover everything and do it right, we did a really good job in 87. And we didn't do a good job the whole way, it's just everything worked out along the way the way we needed it to. And not everything went well. You know, we built two boats that couldn't have won the cup.
1: We're gonna talk about that in a second, Tom. And we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit also about the modern America's Cup shortly. But before that, just looking back to nineteen eighty-three, yep. how good for the sport was it that the Fabulous. cup had finally been wrestled away from New York?
0: Fabulous. Because that turned the game around. It made people realize that they could come and compete and have a chance to win. Where, you know, I think the the uh The fact that America had won so many times, it took a special type of person like Alan Bond or, or, um, you know, Baron Bick or whatever that had enough money and just saw it as a dream. And if they ever won, it would have been fantastic. It just changed the game. There were 12 people, there were 12 teams came to challenge for the America's Cup in Australia, not because it's easy to get to Western Australia, It's because they felt like they had a chance to win. We had five American teams. I think you guys had one or two. White White Crusader. They were fantastic. Good boat. There were a lot of good boats there. And by the way, you know, it 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 did more than that. It 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 made the story became, you know, how do you win the America's Cup and you've got a chance. So a lot of people were interested in it all of a sudden. So 83 was key 83 was the best thing because i think that if if australia 2 lost in 83 to us i think it would have really made people kind of give up and say that's not a game that's very easily winnable and it's a ridiculous amount of money and why go do it and but change the game change the game for me change the game for a lot of people and look at look at the event that it that occurred as a result of it.
1: Hugely affected by the loss. The next cup was going to be 1987 in Fremantle, Australia. What was Dennis's next move?
0: Yeah, so it took Dennis a little bit, a little while. You know, if you ask Dennis right now how long it took him, he'd say, ah, I was on to it right away. But he was definitely in, in a I wouldn't call it a funk, but he was in a—he was in a state where you know,
1: it wasn't—he
0: didn't feel like he just had to go charge out and get this resolved and and uh, and all organized so that we could do what we ended up doing. So he, um, you know, we get, i gave him a little time because I was more motivated than he. Probably because I could go back to a business, and you know I had a little more functional family than Dennis did, and you know I probably have more to fall back on than than uh, than Dennis did because he, you know, sailing was so much of his life. Where you know sail making and sailing was a lot of my life, but you know I, I I sort of had a business around it. So I'm sure that initially he felt worse about it than I did. I mean I felt bad, but. But I didn't feel like we, you know, we completely screwed up. I felt like we could have done better in many ways, but I felt pretty good. I, I could look in the mirror and say, "Hey, we did a pretty good job, I think." But I felt like we could do way better, and so I I was kind of onto that early, and so I gave Dennis a little time, and then I can't remember. He he, I think he called me and he said, "Look, I'm into it now, and we're going to do it." and you know how cool a story would it be to go try to win the thing back? And by the way, we're the guys that should go try to win it back. We lost it. It's our it's our duty to go give it a rip. You know, give it a try. um But anyway, that so we we slowly started putting it together. And he went to the people that have been instrumental to us before, Ed Demoulin, to kind of do the management. We asked Malin Burnham to help us with the fundraising and be sort of the be our, our guiding light in the in the uh, syndicate. We asked Fritz and Liz, Lucy Jewett to be, you know, our main sponsors. So we used a lot of the same people that we knew and cared for and had respect for and people that we thought were smart. So we realized that we had to do a better job on the technology side. And we also realized that it had moved ba- past just naval architecture. We knew we had to employ people that understood uh, aerodynamics, hydrodynamics, um, had tools for analy- analytical tools that could help us with computer analysis and computer um, software. And, and so we went to SAIC, we went to Boeing Aircraft, we went to um, uh, Ford Motor Company, we realized that we had to use them so we tried to find the best people for for the various uh, disciplines that we needed to improve on so that went pretty well and dennis did a great job there and, and and we said to ourselves that hey dennis you don't you cannot take on so much responsibility here you've got to help us with the fundraising help us with some of the technology partners and sail the boat So, we had a great crew, and we just convinced Dennis that he can't worry about the crew and he can't worry about the sailing. I mean, he did, but we tried to convince him to do other things, and he did a wonderful job. He raised the money, he did a really good job uh, enticing technology partners for us. Um,
1: Well, Tom, you know, 13 challengers turned up. I mean, extraordinary. You know, it must have made it. Pretty daunting, you know, winning that spot to take on the Australians. You had to sail, what was it, 43 races before being confirmed as the challengers. How tough was that series?
0: Well, you're jumping ahead of me a little. but So we we had two big boats, and they sailed great in, in uh, Hawaii. But we sent a couple of our guys to the 12-meter Worlds, which was in Fremantle, and almost everybody was there. And we looked at all the boats, and we realized they're all much smaller than we are. So we put two and two together and figured out that the trials were um, October, November, December, and then the final trials races for the semis and the finals were in January. And the early races were in fairly light wind. And the cup itself was in really windy conditions. So we we figured out that we were much bigger than the other boats and that we would be very suspect in the trial races. So we called up Malin and Ed De Moulin and said, we need another boat and we need to raise the money for it. Will you, are you okay with that? And they said, yep, we'll figure it out. And so they raised the money, we built one more boat. It was still on the larger side of the other boats, but we figured if we made it to the cup, it would be the right boat for the cup. So sure enough, we made it through the trials. We uh, didn't win every race, but we got really good at sailing it in light air, and we we prevailed. We had a pretty good uh, regatta through the semis. We had to sail against Tom Blackaller, and his boat was wicked fast, but it was also very difficult to steer it. So we could kind of beat him around the corners and kind of beat him in match race moves. So we we prevailed there, and then we had to race against Kiwi Magic. Which was, um, which was Brad Butterworth and, and, uh, and uh, Chris Dixon and all the hot shots, you know, that eventually went on to be the dream team. So we're, we're driving to the, to the press conference with Dennis. And I said, Dennis, these guys are pretty good in Kiwi Magic, and I think it's a better all-around boat than we are. So if we get in a little bit of the light air, we're gonna be in trouble. So somehow we're gonna to have to sail really at our top level. And the other idea is maybe we could try to get under their skin a little bit because they're a lot younger than we are. I mean, they were 10 years younger than we are or whatever, maybe even a little more. So we're driving to the uh, press conference and I see him taking it in, but he's not answering. And I go, I go, hey, Dennis, you you hear what I'm saying, right? And he goes, yep, I hear. So we go to the press conference and we're all up there, lined up there, Tom Blackaller, Chris Dixon, Brad Butterworth, Dennis and me, somebody else, and uh, Bruno's up there. And somehow the question comes up about why is uh, Kiwi Magic a fiberglass boat? So I see Dennis and he's kind of like fidgeting like this, and all of a sudden he blurts out, And they weren't asking him the question or asking somebody else. He just blurts out, why would you build a plastic boat unless you wanted to cheat? And Chris Dixon turned bright red. And I look over at Brad and I see him, you know, going, you know, kind of turning red. And Tom Blacker chimes in and he goes, whoops, I wouldn't have said that. And Dennis goes, you didn't say that. And then the whole thing kind of blew up and sure enough the next day we went out and raced against the uh kiwi magic and they wouldn't even look at us they were you know chris was so i think we did get under their skin a little bit we had great racing against them and i think we lost one race against them but we beat them beat them for one and then went on to the cup and you know the cup was a little anti because our boat came into its condition we knew we couldn't match race with them. We couldn't turn, you know, we couldn't, if they got us pre-starred and in, into trouble, we would have had a problem. But we figured out, we would go away from the starting line, two minutes, come tack around or jibe around with 210 to go and let them decide. Do they want to be behind or do they want to be ahead? And usually it was just at the right time that the decision was hard. So couple of th- I think it frustrated him. and we were happy to start to the left of him because I don't know if you remember in uh, Fremantle, but the left was always usually pretty good, a little bit better than the right. So we used our speed, tacked under him a little bit um, at the start. usually could gain a boat length or two and just cross. But what really threw it off is the light is that the first race was started in light air. And we were very worried about our speed against them in the light air. And I said to Dennis, the, um, the, the, the left-hand side of the course, even though it's usually good, looked really good this day. It looked like there was quite a bit more wind to the left. So we started the leeward. They, they chose to start all the way on the right-hand end because the line was favored to the right, but we saw a lot more wind to the left. So we started actually on the left end. And we, we, um, they were ahead of us at the start. And we kind of kept going, going, going. And we went into this left shift and quite a bit more wind. And when we first tacked, I said to Dennis, barely crossing, you know, which means be careful. So I go a little bit further, close cross. And Dennis looked, take, goes under the boom for one second, looks under the boom. He goes, no problem, we're crossing. And I'm looking at him and I'm going, oh, geez. And sure enough, they tacked the lure to us. So they must have figured they were behind. So it was a good eye by him. But, um, and then the race kept, the wind kept going left the whole race and it was easy to hold them off, even though they were faster. And then the other three, four races, three races, I can't remember, Do we have five back then? I think maybe five. Um, no problem, we were fast and sailed well and we were pretty good at that point. And we deserved the win, I think. Did a good job.
1: How good did that feel?
0: Felt great because, so every cup felt a little different to me. My first one was, okay, great. Second one, we thought we knew what we we're doing, we lose. But I figured, okay, we sailed pretty well. But if we left it at that, it would have really been a bummer. You know, it would have been one one first first guy to win, first guy to lose the America's Cup. And that would have really felt bad. So I'm so, I was so happy, you know, not... Not like, you know, showing, jumping up and down, but it was great. It was just a wonderful moment. I remember waving the American flag and there were thousands of people on the breakwaters coming in and they loved it. I mean, they were the best sailing public anywhere that I've ever been. It's fantastic. And surely when we went home, we didn't have any idea what was going on, but it was it was like incredible. You know, it was the guys, the guy, everywhere we went, we didn't realize what it was going on at home. Everybody was watching it, they were all into it, all staying up late at night. We flew to, um, they sent a jet for us, you know, a DC-10, and just for our crew and our friends. Um, we had a wonderful trip back, had the cup, you know, in the plane with us. Dennis went up in the cockpit and probably flew the plane for a little while. And, um, Lots of drinks and a little bit of sleep. We land in Honolulu in the middle of the night and there was a, a parade for us. I mean, hundreds of people at the airport cheering us on. Got fuel, you know, had a had a little, um, you know, something to eat with all these people and then flew to San Diego for a, a big parade, um, which was great, a nice event. And again, we're in this DC-10 and they... When it was time to take off, we were going to New York for a tipper, ticker tape parade. We took off out of San Diego and the, the plane leveled off at about 500 feet. And I thought something was wrong. And they turned around, flew back over the uh, airport, dipping in their wings. It was unbelievable. They closed, they closed all of the uh, airspace for us. Then we flew to New York, had a big event, ticker tape parade with Donald Trump down the, uh, and the mayor of uh, the mayor of New York, Mayor Koch, we all got a key to the city, we were all heroes. I mean, it was unbelievable. We got our little ticker tape thing, you know, and beautiful, um, beautiful mementos, and it was just incredible. I mean, nothing like had ever happened for sailing before. I got on the plane in Hartford, Connecticut, and I got a standing ovation. He gave me a right-of-first refusal to spend five million dollars to buy the idea. There was an was an abjunct failure up till then. I think eight cup campaigns is more than any intellectual person should do.
1: I mean, what was what was the White House like? Ronald Reagan? Yeah,
0: so then we got on the plane and went to the White House. It was great. Second time at the White House. Once when we lost, once when we won. He was great. He was still pretty sharp. But Bush was even sharper, and he loved it. He was all into it. We brought, uh, we brought um, uh, the, President Reagan one of the Bush hats, and he put it on, and you know, it was really fun. Had a great event there, and got to know all the people, and just, you know, hard to, hard to even imagine. When I flew, I'm trying to think this out for a second. When I flew, I flew a week later, to go somewhere. I think it was Washington, D.C. again. I got on the plane in Hartford, Connecticut, and I got a standing ovation. Uh, People I'd never seen in my life, but they all knew who I was. So everybody was watching it. It was incredible.
1: I have to ask, Tom, what does having the key to New York City let you do? I mean, is there any kind of benefit?
0: Nothing. (laughs) Nothing. But I've got it, it's, you know, Betsy's not very good about, I mean, she has a particular taste in the house and a particular decor. She doesn't really let me keep any of my trophies, but she lets me keep the key to New York City up there and maybe my picture with uh, President Reagan, but that's one of the few things she lets me keep in the main part of the house.
1: Tom. How did winning that 1987 Cup change your life? Did it change your life? It
0: did for sure because um, I met Terry Kohler and I was and I'd, I'd split up with my partner at Sobstad and I'd gone to do the cup and that was my main focus, my main goal, and all I wanted to do was win the cup. But by the time December came around or so, I started realizing I got to have an afterlife. And um, it was, you know, well before professional sailing was was a way you could make a living. Maybe it was just starting. You know, I could have probably made a living, and my notoriety at that point was pretty good, and I got invited by everybody. And but because I was in the business, I never asked for money. And I ne- and if a client told me he was going to pay me money, I said no. Nope, just consider, you know, my sales at some point. I would let him pay for my uh, airline ticket and, you know, a dinner here and there or whatever. But I always felt like I should keep it separate. Um, but it changed my life a lot because I called up Terry Kohler and I knew that North was struggling a little bit at the time. And I said, I'd heard through the grapevine that North was for sale. And Terry, who had bought it, had had a few presidents that had that had uh, not worked out in his mind and so he he was the president at that point and for me to to ask him if the company was for sale was probably appropriate but he said hey look everything's for sale but let's talk so i got to know him down in fremantle and i liked him a lot and i i told him that i would only I was actually thinking about getting a real job, you know, going to New York and getting a real job like my father or whatever. And then, you know, as the cup went on, I realized, you know, this was my true love. So Terry said, you know, I like your ideas and why don't you come run north and I'll figure out a way you can uh, own a good piece of the company and I'll make it, you know, worth your while. And he said, what would you do if you were in charge? And I said, well, I think there are two things that North is a little bit weak in. First of all, I think from a leadership point of view, you're a smart guy and you know what's right and wrong. But to be a leader of the company, you've gotta know something about, you know, you have gotta know a little more about sailing and sail making than you actually do to gain all the respect of the inside guys. And I said, I, your guys are better than they think they are. And f- for you to tell them that might be difficult, but for me to tell them that could be pretty good. And I think I could build their confidence because I think they're the smartest team that, that exists today and can do all the stuff that I'd like to see done. And the second thing I think is that you have no product differentiation. You have good designers and you have good materials, but you don't have any product differentiation. So. G- As as long as as soon as you come up with a good idea somebody can copy you right away and back then you either made your own sailcloth or you bought it from somebody else and you took the roll and you unrolled it and you cut it into a sail i had an idea that you should make the sailcloth and the sail together but i didn't know how to do it i mean that but north had so many smart guys there i said hey look we'll figure it out and Terry, being an MIT guy, loved it. He he just ate it up, and he said, "You got to come run the company." And I said, "Great." So we we decided well before we won the cup that I'd come run North Sales. So that was the start of you know changing my life there. And then regarding changing my life from you know being a you know whatever you thought of me at the time being a tactician in the cup that had just lost the america's cup and now i want it back you know changed my life there because everybody knew who i was and i got way more invites than i probably deserved and and honestly i got a lot of nice um a lot of nice things happened to me i got uh given a really nice award from the university i went to colby college i got given the man of the year by the um by the uh, University Club in Connecticut, which was for the United States. All these good things just got dumped in my lap. You know, I got a key to the New York City. It was, it was just pretty good. So it, it was a launching pad that I probably didn't do as much with as maybe I could have, but I'm, I'm a pretty humble guy. And, you know, I, I, I was always proud of North and I always put North first. And to me, that was more important than Tom Whitten.
1: We could, of course, talk about the cup all evening, couldn't we, Tom? But we have to move on. And remarkably, you won again with Dennis in the 1988 Deed of Gift match, then sailed another four cup campaigns. But really, I'm I'm guessing by now, your heart's really in north, and I'd like you to to give us a glimpse, Tom, if you can, of how the group, how North has changed over the past 30 something years of your involvement. How big was the global sale market then? And can you perhaps put it in perspective? I mean, what's it worth now?
0: Yeah, so just to put North in perspective, the the, and going back to Terry Kohler's time, Terry generally liked my ideas. And I, I had I wouldn't call them grandiose ideas, but I had big ideas. I had ideas that the company could be much more than it was as just a sailmaking company. So I had ideas that we could do something with the brand, and I had ideas that that to make a sailboat go fast, you have to think of everything above the deck as an engine above the deck. And Terry did a good job calling it the engine above the deck, and he, he, loved, the, he loved the concept. Love the idea. So to build on that, we needed to control the spars and the rigging, and if we didn't do that, we couldn't have controlled the whole aero package of what make a makes a boat go fast. So he was great. He was so so uh, supportive and so encouraging of this idea. So we took some chances, and you know the big chances we took were three DL and then three DI. I mean, over a period of time, we spent $40 million on making molded sales. And to Terry's credit or detriment, he never really gave me any money. He always said, you know, hey, look, I'll back you if I have to, but we should go to the bank and raise the money just like any normal business would and and leverage the business a little bit. And at first, I was kind of grumpy about that because I said, hey, look, you know, these ideas are going to take a fair amount of money, and we're going to fail more times than we're going to achieve, but we're going to get there. I ran into a guy that helped us with the idea, actually two guys um, that helped us with the 3DL idea, and they were the inventors, and they had invented an idea to put a a sail in a female mold and to use... um, to use yarns to strengthen the sale or to provide the strength. So I loved the idea. And I said, oh, this is just what I've been thinking about. Come work for us. And they were the guys that sort of had the the energy and the enthusiasm early on. So the one thing I think I did really well during then is I wasn't afraid to buy technology from the outside. We paid them a royalty. And I said, look, I'll take good care of you guys. Just help us invent it they wouldn't have had, in my mind, we, they wouldn't have had a chance without North because the North engineers helped them get through the issues that came along that would have been deal stoppers. So that worked great. And then, you know, fast forward through 3DI, same deal. You know, two new inventors without our guys, they wouldn't have ever figured it out. I had to buy that idea from uh, Ernesto Bergerelli He gave me a non he gave me a right of first refusal on one day in space to spend five million dollars to buy the idea that was a, was an abjunct failure up till then. So I had to go to the bank, say I've, we've got this idea, it's going to cost five million dollars, and they go, well, how does it work? And I go, it's a failure. But I had to tell them that I think it was the way to go for the future, and look at all the sales now; they're all. They're all the 3D I sales. I mean, all of America's Cup and around the world boats, and they have to use it because they're durable and they're, they hold their shape. And so I'm proud of that. And I think it wasn't me. I was the guy that pushed the idea, but we have so many smart guys that are just so energetic and they're so um, smart and they're so you know they they're so can do. They don't they don't say hey this can't be done. They go we'll figure out how to do it and they do it. And what 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 changed in the business is it changed from rolling a piece of sailcloth out to um, to taking a a yarn and a and a, a film or now adhesive because there, there are no more film a, and make a sail out of it while you're you know make the material and the sail all together, so it's you know pretty cool, right? So that changed and then the other thing that changed is i figured if we wanted to control the aerodynamic part of the boat we had to own a spar maker so you know a number of spar makers later it's now called southern and hall so we own two of them now but we bought a couple to to add strength to southern and you know you look at most of the boats out there they're either southern or hall so we've done a good job i think controlling that and we've raised the game of the carbon spar manufacturing and design and engineering. So I'm very proud about that. And then we had an idea how to make super strong rigging that was durable, So and that was a patented idea, and we spent a bunch of money on that. So we were never shy on investing in the company, and I think it got us to where we are today. But again, technology and people, it's the whole game, because having the best people, we wouldn't have been able to do the technology, and without the technology, we wouldn't have been able to be you know, the size we are. So to your question, Shirley, about what did North look like when I took over, it was give or take 25 million in sales, and now with clothing and whatever else, it's um, 300 million. So it's grown a lot.
1: I've been to Minden, which is the factory where where you mold the sails. It's it's very impressive. It's cool, isn't it? It's very very yeah. cool. Um, and as you say now, you are the CEO of North Technology Group. I mean, how how important is it, you know, to be at the leading edge of, of all those areas, not just sale making?
0: So I felt it was important. So obviously we invested in that side of the business. Um, am I right or am I wrong? You know. Time will tell, I guess. I mean, I think we've, we've been able to dominate a part of the game that I felt was necessary to dominate to be the best. And, you know, I never went into this thinking that I didn't want to be the best. And so I was very fortunate. I've had two great owners. So I've had Terry. I had Terry for give or take, you know, 30 years. And I've had Peter Dubins for eight years. And both have been fantastic for the company in different ways. Uh, Terry was great at the technology side, and uh, Peter has been great about making the business think about it as a business and keep thinking ahead on how we're going to protect our edge. So, and and you know, Peter isn't true private equity. You know, he's not the kind of guy that comes in and tries to run your company. He's the kind of guy that's passionate about the sport, gives us good ideas and backs management. And I'm sure if he doesn't like the management, he'll be happy to get rid of us or change the management. But for now, he's he's been happy. And just to clarify, I've moved myself up to um, executive chairman. I've moved Richard Lott to, uh, to CEO and Ken is now the president of NTG as well as North. So, we've moved, and we've got a lot of good young guys coming up. Um, Dan Neri has been a real star for us over many years, but he's going to retire at the end of the year, unless I can talk him into not retiring. And we've got good guys behind him. So, I couldn't be luckier as far as the team's been concerned.
1: Tom, I'm curious to know, when you look at a, a modern cup boat, what do you think?
0: So because I've always been interested in the technology side of things I I think it's fantastic from the technology point of view and I think that because the cup has always been about has always been a t- technology race you I think nobody should be should stand in the way of bringing it to the highest level and I think if the highest level is foiling and wing sails and being out of the water the idea is really clever and fantastic and I would never say anything detrimental about it from the sailing point of side of me the sail, the pure sailing side of it I think a little is being missed but having said that I don't I'm not the type of person that would say hey it was better in my day and it's not as good today I'm a little sad that it's, you know, six grinders and three sailors, but it's what it is. And I watched every race and I loved every race. And by the way, you were fantastic.
1: <laughs> Thank you. I mean, you're involved at the New York Yacht Club, Tom. You're on the board. Is that, is that right?
0: I'm everything. You're, I'm, you're I'm everywhere. On, <laughs> I'm on every committee and I don't even know how I end up on these <laughs> committees.
1: I mean, it was it was great to see American Magic representing the club down in Auckland, and you're recommitting for AC 37 with American Magic again. I mean, why did it take the club so long to return to the America's Cup competition?
0: Well, you know, there are, there, so so it's an easy answer in one respect, and it's a hard answer in another respect. The easy answer is that there was a lot the club has done during that period where they weren't quite as involved with the America's Cup as they were. They had a couple of forays with Dennis and one with young America and whatever, but they were always feeling like they should be one foot in and one foot out. And during that period, as I alluded to just now, the club grew a lot. They they bought Harbor court. They've turned into, to me, a very user friendly club for sailors where they used to be a little more Um, stodgy and they were all about sailing for sure, but they were not as inclusive as they are today. Young people want to join the New York Yacht Club today, and we had a hard time appealing to 20-year-olds or even 30-year-olds back when I first joined. I joined in 1985 or 84, and I would have called the club much less inclusive then. As you know, you've been to Harbor Court and it's a beautiful facility. And if we were involved in the Cup, Harbor Court might not have happened. And I think that to be to be the New York Yacht Club, you've got to have your main building in New York City. But I think without Harbor Court, we wouldn't be the club we are today. I think that today, they think that they've evolved enough and that they can easily be involved in America's Cup and be helpful. Um, from a fundraising and from a knowledge and whatever point of view. I'm sure Terry and Hap and Doug DeVos think that, you know, being involved with a cup has its pluses and minuses and the minuses is, I'm sure we're a pain in the ass. And the pluses are that there is a little knowledge there and there is a base of, of wealth that they can draw on maybe to raise a little bit of money. And so I'm sure it'll be a net, at least even and maybe a little bit positive.
1: There was some chat in Auckland about a dislike of the modern boats from the club, about a desire to return to displacement monohulls. Is is that a possibility? Do you think? And you know, would that be good for the sport?
0: Okay, you can take either side of that argument, but um, and I don't think there's any one opinion in the club that is a driving opinion that will get us to the finish line. So. What everybody misses, Shirley, and I'm sure you do, is the crew work and the sails going up and down and falling in the water and the people tipping over and whatever, you know, it's that we miss that. And we miss the boat for boat, um, you know, boats that are more even speed and what. However, having said that, I think everybody was surprised how close the boats were. We, we still miss the crew work and we still miss the sails going up and down and all the glory of a bigger boat and a bigger sail plan and whatever. But I don't, I personally think that that technology needs to evolve and what a wonderful idea to have a single keel to uh, keep the boat from going sideways, keep the boat from, uh, keep the boat going forward, not going sideways and lifting it out of the water. And giving it stability. So what a what a great idea, and I wish I thought of it.
1: Is there a part of you, Tom, as a sailor who wishes you were competing on the AC-75s, and, and can you even imagine how tough it is calling tactics with 100 knot closing
0: speeds? Absolutely not. Because <laughs> I've done eight cups. I, w- I didn't mean to do eight. You probably know that I retired after six. And then um, i didn't come for the first trials in 2000 and um, i was lucky enough to have kenny and dennis ask me if i would come and because they had a rough first series and then the bad news is we did pretty well so i had to stay and then i and then i agreed for another so i did eight and i think eight cup campaigns is more than any intellectual person should do um but i'm not that smart so but I wouldn't I, I loved every one of them for different reasons and um the losses get blurred in with the wins over time and, and uh they all have special moments and the the experiences that I had and the people that I met and the people that I were team members with, I wouldn't give I you know, I wouldn't give that up for anything. And, you know, my career, I wouldn't change for anything. My my son's a banker and he introduces me to his friends and he goes, you know, my dad did okay for a guy with a full-time summer job. And I say to him, are you disparaging me or are you just jealous? But, you know, he's kind of right. It's pretty cool.
1: That's funny. Let's talk a little bit about American Magic. They're back again as a challenger. Terry Hutchinson again leading Paul Goodison, Andrew Campbell and the team. Can you put it in perspective at all what it would mean to win the cup back for the club?
0: Yeah, so first of all my comments on American Magic is I think they learned a lot from last time and you know they had that unfortunate circumstance but um, they were smart enough to to know at this point that they didn't lose just because they tipped over. You know, they had some things that they could have done better and I think they recognized them and I think very much Terry Will, has learned you know the the old adage that you learn more from your losses and you better figure out why you lost so i I, I like their chances this time I think the team's really good I think that um, they're uncovering a lot of stones that they didn't uncover last time and I think uh, Terry is figured out he doesn't probably be a better leader if he's not on the boat so I, I think all good this time and I think they're approaching it and very much the right way. And, you know, I I think it's always tough to beat the Kiwis, but I I like their chances better this time. And I think the club's very proud of them. I think they're proud to be involved.
1: That's good to hear. At this point, Tom, I, I usually ask my guests what they'd have done differently or or what they're most proud of in their career, but you've achieved so very much in your life. I and mean, for a man with such a very obvious love of our sport, who's been involved for so very long, where do you think our sport sits now? Is it in better shape now than it was when it first caught your attention?
0: So it's different. The The dynamics have changed since I was an up-and-coming sailor, call it my late teens, my early 20s. So how I sort of compartmentalize that I think about, I think about young sailors today and all the Opti and 420 and 470 and NACRA and you know, that sailing, I see that as very strong until the kids get out of university. And I think that to keep them going once they get out of university or that age group in there is very difficult because I think, young people are more committed to the family than they were in my day. And I think they're more committed to their careers than I was. And I mean, I was kind of the generation that you did everything that your parents told you not to do. And I, I'm not saying kids have changed, you know, they still like doing things that their parents don't want them to do. But I see them as being more serious today, more serious about their families and more serious about their careers and getting to where they want to be. And so I see less people, unless they decide to be either professional sailors or go do an Olympic campaign or you know try to raise money for some activity that you want to do, there's no real path for 25 to 35 year olds other than to get into big boat racing and or be a crew and whatever. So I think that's changed the game a little bit. On the other hand, there's uh, much more wealth. And, and I think that sailing has much more attention than it had in my day. And I think things like you're doing, Shirley, and things like all the imagery and advertising and, and all the uh, the thought about the ecology and the, the ocean and keeping things clean. Um, so there's so many things that are positive about sailing if you think about Things that we all care about, the ecology, the blue ocean, the reefs, the whatever. So I think our sport is in better shape from that point of view, and it's growing right now, which I'm happy about. Um, during coronavirus, racing slowed up because people didn't want to have events. But guess what? Our business, it wasn't great on the first year, but you know, when coronavirus, because that kind of shut everything down. But the second year, more people spent money on their boats than I ever remember. People that are just cruising, you know, want to be out on their boats. So they've realized that it's a good place to be and, and, and clean and green and, and a good activity. So I think the sport's in good shape.
1: Finally, Tom, with all the experiences you've had, what advice would you give that 10-year-old Thomas Whedon standing on the Slitway with his brand new Blue Jay, about to embark on a lifetime of sailing adventures. What would you tell him?
0: I'd tell him that there's no better sport at that age because you can do it for the rest of your life and you can, you can do something that doesn't involve being with adults the whole time. You can be with your age group at a quite a young age. You can go to regattas and be on, and make your own decisions. You can uh, be an individual, you can sail an Opti, you can sail a two-man boat, you can uh, d- you know, just learn about what makes things go and learning how to trim and to, and to hike and to smell the wind and to do something that, for my life, has been really enjoyable. And I do a lot of other sports. I, I was an athlete when I was young and did a lot of different things, but I kept coming back to sailing. I liked it the best. So I think, and my grandson, my kids weren't quite as into sailing, but my grandkids are really into it. And a ten-year-old Thomas Whidden, because there is a Thomas Whidden, a grandson, started sailing opties when he was ten, and um, he is in 420s now. He and uh, and another young man won the worlds in San Remo last summer, and look look what it's done for his life, you know. And he's he's an okay athlete in other ways, but He's really taken to sailing, and, and here he is in San Remo, Italy, winning the World Championships with decision-making of his own. You know, it wasn't me. I told him that sailing was fun, and I taught him a few things, but it wasn't me. It was him, himself and some coaches that he looked up to that, it, that he responded well to, and the, the two of them got really good and won the Worlds. I think it was the first time an American had won in 38 years. And the whole American team did well. So I would tell every 10 year old to give it a rip if they can, I mean, it's not a cheap sport and it's not access for all, but it's getting better that way. You know, community sailing and disabled sailing and women's sailing, and it's all growing, it's doing great. And if you go to the the college All-Americans in the United States right now in the top 10, I guarantee it'll be five women and five men. In no particular order.
1: Well, Tom Whitten, it has been an absolute honor. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing your memories. And on behalf of everyone in our sport, thank you for your tireless energy and enthusiasm for yacht racing. Thank you, Tom.
0: It's not over, Shirley. I'm gonna keep going.
1: I don't doubt it. Try
0: to make you proud in the future. Thanks, Tom. Thank you.
1: Tom Whitten, ladies and gentlemen, a genuine legend of our sport, taking us through some of the most memorable moments of a truly remarkable career. Tom, again, many, many thanks. And what a way to round off Series 3 of the podcast. It's been another fascinating year of stories from the very heart of the sport of competitive sailboat racing. If you haven't yet listened to them all, take a look at the rest of the guests we've sat down with from offshore sailing to the Olympic Games and the America's Cup. We've spoken to boat builders and coaches, designers and sailmakers, and some of sailing's true pioneers. Check it out and give them a listen. And if you're enjoying what you hear, buy us a coffee. It's easy to do. Buymeacoffee.com forward slash sailing podcast. Helping us bring you uninterrupted ad-free chat from the leading lights in the sport of sailing. A massive thanks to everyone that's appeared on the podcast this season. It'd be tough to make this without the commitment of guests. So to each and every one of you, thanks for your time and your energy for the sport. And of course, to Tim at Vertigo Films, whose tireless work and enthusiasm makes these podcasts possible. It's a lot of work making these each month. His care and attention to detail is relentless. So for another season in the bag, a massive thank you. To Tim. Keep in touch via social media. I'm Shirley Sale on Instagram and Twitter, and Shirley Robertson on Facebook. That's it from us here at the podcast for a while. Thank you so much for listening. Have fun on the water and sail safe, everyone. This is Castle
0: One. Great, Castle One. Officer speaking. speaking. Oh, Layline oh. is on boundary up ahead,
1: 35 seconds out. They're lowering faster here, lowering faster here. Ho, oh, oh, ho, oh. ho. That's a good one, Jimmy. They're gaining
0: on the daylight, man. Still gaining on the daylight, We're man. looking at 10 5 42. Matching him on the boundary, Jeff. Yeah. Copy. This is Castle One, standing by.
1: Out.